Welcome to Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Craig Kopp, reporting that at this halfway point of this legislative session, the House session apparently has a theme. You know, if I could sort of come up with, you know, what would be a, a huge theme of our legislative session here in the Florida House? And I, I think if I were to pick one, it would be empowering parents and family. House Speaker Chris Sprawls took to satellite radio to explain legislation he says matches that theme. The rent is too damn high. The rent's too damn high was Democratic Senator Victor Torres' battle cry at an event to highlight affordable housing legislation that's going nowhere this session. And we asked the deep questions here on Sunrise, like, if a farm welcomes tourists, is it still a farm? People are coming to the farm because it's a farm. And yes, there are commercial activities that like weddings and pumpkin festivals that are taking place that utilize those facilities as well. But it became confusing for local governments. Sunrise talks with the Florida Agritourism Association about a legislative move to protect farms that participate in Florida's growing agritourism business. But first... Florida House Speaker Chris Sprawls appeared on Sirius Satellite Radio with host David Webb on his Patriot Channel show to talk about the 2022 legislative session in Florida, which the Republican described as having the general theme of empowering parents and family. You know, obviously there's been this huge national conversation about, you know, the the influence and, and, you know, we don't want to turn over the raising of our children to school bureaucrats or to government bureaucrats that parents should have the ability to be the ones who teach their kids and making sure that they're getting quality education, you know, and quality, you know, uh, quality values from from themselves, from parents. And I think if you look at that, so what does that mean when it comes to policy, right? So on the one hand, you have who's making the decisions? Who's making the decisions as to whether or not your kid is going to be masked? In school, well, it's not the school district. It's not a bureaucrat. It's not, you know, Washington D.C. It's it's parents. Parents in the state of Florida get to make that decision. Well, what about the curriculum? I mean, you know, it's kind of something that's often, you know, sort of hidden under the couch cushions. You know, parents don't know, you know, for six hours a day, what's, you know, what what are the things that are being taught? You know, we have a bill this year that makes sure that the curriculum is radically transparent. You know, that it's in front of the parents. They know they can access it. They know what's being taught. You know, in the schools. They can push back on things like inappropriate, uh, you know, sex education, making sure that, you know, in grades, you know, K through three, if the school, you know, the school district isn't in charge of introducing complicated topics to the kids, the parents are in charge in making sure that they're framing and talking to their kids about those kinds of issues. Sprouse highlighted legislation like the individual freedom bill. Um, You know, once you're born, you know, which, of course, we're, we're trying to uh, you know, protect the sanctity of human life this session with the 15-week abortion ban uh, that's it's coming through and will pass off the House floor. But then once you're born, we should protect you as an individual. You know, we're living in a society now which wants to cast us into groups and buckets and then determine our destiny based on those buckets. And we've got an individual freedom bill that says you can't do that. You have to treat children, people in the workplace as individuals. You can't say, well, because you're a part of this sex or this race, you know, you, you know, you fit into this bucket and this is what that means for you. We can't we're, we're pushing back against those kinds of things because we believe that people, if they're empowered from the beginning of their life, they should be empowered throughout and be able to succeed as individuals. 
Sprouse admitted this kind of legislation is causing controversy. President Joe Biden called legislation to limit talk about sexual orientation hateful. But Sprouse told host David Webb that Republicans aren't afraid to make their case because the media is getting it wrong. There's no reluctance to make the case on the merits. So often, if you look at Twitter, you know, for information, it's going to be wrong about what it is that we're doing. And yet that's what you see the media, particularly on the left, you know, focuses on a tweet about a bill rather than actually pulling the bill and reading the words on the page to find out what it is that we're doing. I always sort of welcome the opportunity, David, when I speak to groups. I always say, tell me the thing that you, you, you saw in the news that we're doing that just, just makes you scratch your head. Because they always say the things that the media gets wrong. And, you know, it gives us an opportunity to correct the record. And I, I think that's, you know, something that our members are conditioned to do um, aggressively because we'll, we're willing to stand behind the policy that we put forward and we pass off this House floor because it's how we've been successful with the voters election cycle after election cycle. Florida Democratic State Representative Victor Torres riffed off an old viral video shouting, the rent's too damn high at a Capitol gathering of Democrats and the organization Florida Rising. And his point was all the legislation Democrats are putting forward to control, it's not getting a hearing this session. Democratic Representative Dottie Joseph said Republicans are using other legislation to distract from the real problem, the affordable housing crisis. They want you to focus on non-existent issues like critical race, which is not being taught in K-12 schools. They want you to focus on all kinds of other boogeymen, like people coming to the border. Let me tell you, as somebody who has advocated for and worked with refugees all around the world, going to a port of entry is literally the legal thing to do. But they want to rewrite history and call these people illegals. None of that has anything to do with anything. You know what Floridians are worried about? How are we going to pay our rent? How are we going to buy a house? Housing rates have soared. And all the programs that we have to address these things are not being considered. Democratic Rep. Carlos Guillermo Smith wants the governor to act. Just a month or so ago, I joined a nearly a dozen Democratic lawmakers from the House and Senate urging Governor DeSantis to declare a housing affordability state of emergency. And the reason, the reason this state of emergency is so important is because it opens up existing statutory protections against consumer price gouging. Democratic Congressman Charlie Crist was talking solar energy in Miami in his campaign to win his party's nomination for governor. Crist was big on solar when he last occupied the governor's mansion from 2007 to 2011. Legislation moving through this session would walk back things he pushed through, like net metering, which makes utilities pay solar users for power they generate but don't use. A goal that will start with bringing solar back to the governor's mansion, which I did when I was first year governor, by putting it on every state-owned building that will save taxpayers money as well. We're ready to implement solutions that make us first, not last, when it comes to supporting solar and harvesting clean energy. Let me be clear. Solar energy will create good paying jobs across Florida. Lowering our electric bills by potentially hundreds of dollars a month, giving small business owners a way to cut costs, and fighting climate change and sea level rise at the same time. Solar for all is a promise that once I'm in office, 
We're going to fight a tax on net metering and create new incentives and renewable energy credits that put solar in reach for even more of our fellow Floridians. Christ says he wants to see solar on a million Florida roofs. Legislation aimed at protecting farmers involved in agritourism is facing no opposition this session. Polk City Republican Josie Timko's bill makes it clear that farmland can be taxed at a lower rate even when parts of it are being used for agritourism. Lisa Ard of the Florida Agritourism Association told Sunrise that concept was already law, but there's been some confusion. In the time since, um, we estimate there's somewhere upwards of 800 to 1,000 agritourism operations in the state of Florida. We have about 300 members, and they're all types of things. So they're U-picks and crop mazes and wedding barns and um, you name it. We have them all listed at visitfordafarms.com or on our app. You can find our app, um, the Florida Agritourism Association app, uh, in either app store. Agri- Culture is our number two economic driver in the state of Florida. It's very important. And we all want safe food that's local. So that is really what Florida farms. And we have a lot of Florida heritage farms that are fourth, fifth, sixth generation operations. But with a growing state and with a fluctuation in prices and disease that comes in, particularly that, you know, the citrus industry has been subject to and, um, weather and because we've got crazy weather in Florida um, and then pressures from development um, it makes it hard to make it as a farmer in this day and age and so the agritourism law really was put in place as an additional stream of income to stabilize their annual income so they wouldn't be so subject to the whims of nature or the whims of other things that impact farming. So the, the, what's what's going through the legislature now and looks like everything's going to end up passing is just affirming up what that original law uh, laid out so that farmers uh, would not have, you know, their taxes raised because they're, they're still there are still a working farm and taxed accordingly. And uh, the, the, the liability issues are, are just beefed up to make sure that everything is is square with them if they want to get involved in this agritourism side of things. Correct. It, we are calling it a clarification. We've had some, we what we would call misinterpretations by local governments because it wasn't fully clarified in statute. Um, and so it's been hard for them to assess that once a barn becomes used for commercial operations sometimes is it commercial or is it still a farm now our operators still utilize their barns as part of their an integral part of their farm but they also use it for a commercial purpose so it got a little confusing i think sometimes for local officials and interpretation of the law um, and they were inappropriately removing the ag classification from underneath the barns and many of these barns were surrounded by fields and cows so they were clearly an agricultural operation um and that barn was clearly an integral part of their overall farm so this law goes in to clarify um that even though a structure is how the statute puts it um, a farm structure is utilized for agritourism purposes, it does not 
take away its underlying farm status, but we do allow it to be assessed at its just value price. And so we've, we copied a um, rule that's in place around homesteads on farm properties to align um, the statute with what's already in rule for homesteads for non-residential farm buildings. So we thought that was a fair way to kind of clarify, but also make sure that local governments, it did not reduce their tax base. It's a farm. It's a barn. People are coming here because it's a working farm and a working right. barn. So that's what how it should be taxed. Yes, you get it. You get it. People are coming to the farm because it's a farm. And yes, there are commercial activities that like weddings and pumpkin festivals that are taking place that utilize those facilities as well. But it became confusing for local governments. And, you know, local governments uh, in different parts of the state interpret it in different ways. And we give a lot of latitude around the ag law, what we commonly referred to as the Greenbelt Law, to our property appraisers, our constitutionally elected property appraisers in each county. And we find that with 67 counties and 67 property appraisers, they can all interpret laws slightly different. And so we hope that this provides the clarification that they need in interpretation of the law. Let's talk about just agritourism in general. I'm assuming that it's growing. I, I mean, I love the concept because it's the two biggest businesses in Florida, tourism and agriculture. You put them together, agritourism. Um, I'm assuming that the number of people who are interested in, in going to see how all this works, it's not just wedding barns. It's people who want to take their kids and see how everything works on a farm. It is an incredible growth Um in this industry. We were actually behind as a state. There were some much smaller states that were much further ahead of us when we started and we passed the law, um, which as a native Floridian kind of offends me. We should be number one. We should be primacy. We are the tourism state. And like you mentioned, number two, we have a large agricultural impact on our economy. Um, So we are fighting to grow this That being said, do you want to know the biggest boom for agritourism operations? It was the pandemic. Because as uh, America started to open up and as Florida started to open up, but people were still a little leery of gathering in large enclosed spaces, they were willing to go out on the farm. And so our UPIC operations saw and our crop mazes where people, you know, go through in the fall, um, they saw 25 to 50% growth over what they'd seen pre-pandemic. And so what was a real, it was difficult in the beginning when everything was shut down, of course, like for everyone. And then of course, you know, the stories that we had crops dying on the vines that couldn't get transported. And they very quickly flipped to a model where the farms were selling directly to the public. All of these things can be classified as agritourism. And so what was hurtful to much of the economy ended up being a boon to the agritourism operations because it made more people aware of all the fabulous things that they can do in the rural parts of their communities. And then they learn where their food comes from and they learn um, that it's so important, our agricultural industry and our members are constantly reinforcing because we all go to, I love Publix, 
I go to Publix, we go buy our groceries, but we become very disconnected from where our food comes from. And and I think the experiences that farms, you know, go through, whether it's from an economic or just a personal family scenario, we as a society have become very disconnected from our farms. Whereas a hundred years ago, we were either all farmers or somebody in our family was a farmer. And so agritourism is that connection back to the rest of us who are doing white collar work and not working on the farm and to the essential work that farmers do in the state of Florida. I hadn't thought about the fact that the pandemic could have bumped up the amount of people going on agritourism uh, adventures, but I can see how that that would happen. Yeah, it, it was exciting. I mean, it was actually unexpected to us. But we started getting these reports from our farms and said, you know, we were worried, but wow, we had great fall seasons. And um, and then the follow on fall season, when it was even more opened up and they were like it, it held because more people were following their social media and more people were engaging with them and they were telling their friends. And so uh, what may have been a curse to the rest of society may end up being a blessing for our industry. Um, but we. Um, we're excited about the future. Well, Lisa Ard with the Florida Agritourism Association. I appreciate the conversation. Thanks. All right. You have a great day. Here's some of what's happening in Florida politics today. The House is scheduled to hold a floor session at noon. The Senate will hold a floor session at 1.30. The Senate Special Order Calendar Group will set a special order calendar that will list bills to be heard on the Senate floor. That'll happen 15 minutes after today's floor session. The following Senate committees meet today. The Senate Agriculture Committee, the Senate Governmental Oversight and Accountability Committee, the Senate Health Policy Committee, the Senate Finance and Tax Committee, and the Senate Rules Committee. These are the House committees meeting today, the House Commerce Committee, the House Health and Human Services Committee, the House Pandemics and Public Emergencies Committee, and the House Rules Committee. Also today, the Florida Supreme Court will hear arguments in four cases, including on an issue about whether death row inmates should be able to represent themselves in certain court proceedings. The issue centers on circuit court proceedings that take place after defendants have been convicted and sentenced to death. The post-conviction proceedings often involve issues like whether defendants received adequate legal representation in their trials or whether newly discovered evidence could clear them. The Florida Supreme Court will also release weekly opinions today. Democratic U.S. Representative Charlie Crist will host a virtual roundtable this morning with members of the Florida NAACP and community faith leaders on the growth of right-wing extremism in Florida and recent incidents of anti-black and anti-Semitic violence. It's an early wake-up call for Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed, who will take part in the annual Flip the Switch event to kick off the Florida State Fair. That happens at the Florida State Fairground in Tampa at 6.30 this morning. Republican U.S. Representative Greg Stubbe is set to speak during a meeting of the Sarasota County Republican Executive Committee. And state political candidates and committees face a deadline today for filing reports showing finance activity through January the 31st. And finally, with temperatures still on the chilly side in much of Florida, I want to make sure you hear this story before it's time to slip the flip-flops back on and do some sweating. 
Animal Care and Control up in Lexington, Kentucky, posted this to its Facebook page last week. In Florida, they have falling lizard alerts when it gets cold. That, of course, a reference to the iguanas in southern Florida who go into suspended animation when it gets cold and, well, fall out of trees. Well, this animal control organization in Kentucky reported a falling buzzard alert. We've had multiple calls on buzzards falling out of trees, they said. A big ice storm caused the buzzards' wings to be iced over, preventing them from flying. Lexington Animal Control reported picking up 35 birds in need of a little defrosting. Once warmed up, they were good to go and released back into the wild. Falling iguanas don't sound so bad now, do they? That's it for today's edition of Sunrise. I'm Craig Kopp. Join us again tomorrow as we do another daily dive into Florida politics.